book of Isaiah in chapter 53. The book of Isaiah was written probably 700 to 750 years before Jesus was born. Uh, Isaiah is the longest prophetic book in the entire Bible. It's the most prophetic book in the Old Testament. Um, you'll find that Isaiah is quoted by New Testament writers more often than any other Old Testament prophets. In fact, I'm not sure, but I believe I'm safe in saying that the book of Isaiah is quoted more often by New Testament writers than all Old Testament prophets put together, the others. Uh, and that's the book of Isaiah. I want you to follow with me while I read uh, chapter 53. It's only 12 verses. We'll buzz right through it. Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now listen to verse number 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. I'm not, going to, I'm not finished with the reading yet, but I've got to tell you this little story. Years ago, Charles Haddon Spurgeon had preached a meeting in London, England, and he boarded the train to go to the next place preached another meeting, and uh, as he was standing on the train and it was pulling out from the depot, a man came frantically running down the boardwalk, waving his arms and hollering out and crying out, Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon, I heard you preach last night, and I want to get saved. Mr. Spurgeon, what do I have to do? Well, Spurgeon was on the train, the train was leaving, didn't have time to, you know, couldn't stop the train. So he hollered back at him. He said, I'll tell you what you do, young man. He said, you go home and get a Bible. Open it up to Isaiah chapter 53. Go to verse number 6. And he said, go in at the first all and come out at the last all and you'll be saved. So he went home and he looked up that verse. He went in at the first all. All we like sheep have gone astray. And he came out at the last all the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, and he got it settled. Verse 7, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He's brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, 
and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death. And it was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressions. Don't close your Bibles. Bow with me, please, for prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray thy blessing on the preaching time this morning. We need your help. I pray that if there is one here today who's not 100% sure for a Bible reason, if they died, they'd go to heaven, that you'd help that one to realize and sense and even feel his or her need. Once and for all, be willing to turn to you and trust you. Get it settled. Pray that you challenge our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to preach this morning on the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Obviously, they're not found in this passage. But this passage is probably the clearest passage in all of the Old Testament about the crucifixion of our Lord. It's ironic, but Psalm 22, written by, I believe, David, uh, was written about a, close to a thousand years before it actually took place. It's a prophecy of the crucifixion of Christ. You'll find some intricate details uh, of the crucifixion process described. And the interesting thing is, crucifixion hadn't been invented yet. It wasn't invented until nearly a thousand years later. The Romans invented it in between the Old and New Testament period. Uh, but God prophesied every detail. Now, if you know anything at all about the book of Isaiah, you know that it's often termed uh, the little Bible. And for this reason, there are 66 books in the Bible, 66 chapters in Isaiah. The first 39 books of the Bible are primarily the history of Israel. first 39 chapters of Isaiah, primarily the history of Israel. The last 27 books of the Bible are primarily about the life and ministry and death of Jesus Christ. The last 27 chapters of Isaiah are prophetic, primarily about the life, the death, the ministry of Jesus Christ. The last 27 books of the Bible begin with a brief description of the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, and they end with a beautiful description of the new heaven, the new earth, place where we'll live forever. And likewise, the last, 30, last 27 books of uh, Isaiah begin with, in Isaiah chapter 40, the first three verses, a brief prophetic description of the life and ministry of John the Baptist. And they end with Isaiah chapter 65, beginning with verse 17, through the last chapter, 66, a beautiful description of our eternal abode. For that reason, Isaiah is often called the little Bible. Now, I'm going to try not to be too academic this morning, but if you've read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find out in a hurry that each one is written for a different specific purpose. Each one is an incomplete biography of Jesus Christ. In fact, all put together, they're still an incomplete biography of the life of our Lord. Matthew was written to show that Jesus is the King of the Jews, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. 
Matthew begins with the royal genealogy of Christ, and it takes it from Abraham through David all the way down to Jesus Christ, his genealogy. Uh, the, the, the chief phrase throughout the book of Matthew is, this was done or said that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet of the Old Testament saying. Matthew's all about Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Mark, however, second gospel, is not about Christ as the Messiah. It's about Jesus Christ as the servant of God and the servant of man. Uh, the, the book of Mark doesn't contain the genealogy of Christ. It doesn't contain the birth record of Christ. It doesn't even contain anything about the life of Jesus Christ until his ministry begins. Why is that? Well, ask your question. Who's interested in the birth of a servant? Nobody is. And that book's written to show that Jesus was the servant of God and the servant of man. You'll notice that nearly every verse in Mark begins with a conjunction and, showing continuity of service. Now, I don't know, uh, you know, I, I'm British, but I, I, I don't know if there's any teachers here or not or grammarians, but you do not begin a sentence with a conjunction. It's always been wrong, incorrect. In formal writing, you do not begin a sentence. It's the cardinal sin. You don't begin a sentence with a conjunction. But nearly every verse in Mark begins with a conjunction and. Showing the constant activity of Jesus Christ. And he went there, and he did this, and he said that, etc. That's the Gospel of Mark. Luke, however, was written to show that Jesus Christ is the Son of Man. It's about his humanity. Now, Jesus Christ is not the Son of a man, but he is the Son of Man. Luke begins with the legal genealogy of Christ and starts with Christ and goes all the way back to Adam and shows his legal right to be the Son of Man. Then when you get to the Gospel of John, this I'm laying the foundation. When you get to the Gospel of John, John doesn't begin with the genealogy. It doesn't begin with the birth record. It doesn't begin with the childhood. It doesn't begin uh, at the beginning of Christ's ministry. John goes all the way back into eternity past. And begins with, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because John is all about Jesus Christ as the Son of God and God the Son. Now, as you study the Bible, as you read the Bible, it doesn't take long to pick up on it. Uh, you study his death, the four records in the Bible of his death. And there's no contradictions. There are different facts included, but no contradictions, obviously. You'll find that Jesus died a very natural death. By that I mean, he died. When Jesus died, his heart quit beating, his pulse quit thumping, and uh, his brain waves went flat. He died a real, literal, physical death. Jesus did not swoon for our sins. He died for our sins. Jesus did not faint for our sins. He died for our sins. Jesus did not pass out for our sins. He died for our sins. 
Jesus did not lapse into a comatose state for our sins. He died for our sins. He died a real, literal, natural death. But he also died, he also died a very unnatural death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. Death is always the result of sin. And yet Jesus Christ did no sin. He had no sin. Why did he die? For yours and mine. That's why. He died an unnatural death. He also died, don't let this word throw you, I only use it to try to make you think I'm smart. He also died a, he also died a preternatural death. That simply means his death was planned and it was a done deal before the foundation of the world. Way back, I'm going to use a word that's really an oxymoron, but way back in eternity past, God the Father, if you please, and God the Son and God the Holy Ghost sat around the eternal conference table, looked forward in time and knew that man whom they would create would sin. And that that man would need, and all of his children would need, a, a perfect substitute to die for their sins. Jesus Christ stepped forward and said, Father, I'll go. And from that moment on, in the mind of God, the death of Jesus was a done deal. The Bible calls him the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He died a preternatural death. But you know, his death was also supernatural. Very supernatural. Uh, in this sense. Uh, uh, there is a sense in which God had a hand in Jesus' death. Our text tells us that Jesus Christ was smitten of God, stricken by God, afflicted by God. God had a hand in his death. Bible also says that Satan had a hand in Jesus' death. You go back to Genesis 3.15, the first announcement of the gospel. You'll find that God told Satan there in the garden that there's coming a day when you will uh, crucify the, the seed of the woman. I don't know if you're aware of it or not. I'm sure many of you are, but the seed doesn't come from the woman. It comes from the man. That seed of the woman happens to be a reference to the virgin birth. God told Satan that day in the garden, you will have a hand in crucifying the Son of God. It kind of tickles me to think about this. That means for 4,000 years, Satan planned, plotted, schemed, and looked forward to having a hand in the death of the Son of God. Little did he know, he did not know that it would be to his own demise because Jesus said, the prince of the world, Satan, is judged on Calvary. Well, Satan had a hand in it. And yet there are passages also say that man killed Jesus. When Peter and the other apostles were preaching on the day of Pentecost and the following days, they said to the crowd that was there on Calvary's hill, when they nailed our Lord to the cross, they said, you crucified the Son of God, you murdered him with your wicked hands. So God had a hand in it. Satan had a hand in it. Man had a hand in it. But in reality, 
Nobody killed Jesus. John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down when I want to. And when I'm ready, I'll take it up. By the way, three days later, he got ready and he took it up. I'm saying he died a very supernatural death. Now, I, I used to ask the question. I've learned to ask my, not ask myself so many questions. I give dumb answers usually. I used to ask the question, I wonder why Jesus was crucified between two thieves. I mean, he's the Son of God. He's God. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Creator of the heaven and earth. Sustainer of all that. Why did he have to die on a, on a skull-shaped hill between two common low-life convicted criminals? And I used to wonder and ponder that. And I thought to myself, well, maybe, maybe he, God put it between two thieves to give us a demonstration of the depths of shame to which man had descended. To think that they would take the Son of God, love personified, and put him to death like that. I used to think maybe Jesus died between two thieves because he was dying as our substitute. He was dying for sin, for sinners. He became sin. So it's only right that he should die between sinners. Oh, you can think of a number of reasons. I'm thoroughly convinced. Well, I'll tell you another reason. I think Jesus died between uh, two thieves to give us an account of the only two possible responses to the gospel. One thief said no. And the other said yes. That's all there is. Either say yes to Jesus Christ, or by refusing to say yes to him, you have said no to him. But I'm thoroughly convinced that maybe this next reason overrides all the others. I just can't help but believe that God, back in eternity past, knew that when Jesus Christ would be put to death, that there would be somebody on the cross on that same hell on that same day who was ripe and ready to be saved. And so God maybe said to himself, I know what I'll do. I'll plan it out this way and I'll put my son, the greatest soul winner that ever lived, right next to that man. And right then and there, he put, he put Jesus Christ right next to that man who turned to him and said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. I'm not sure. There's not an awful lot of theology in that. But, you know, sometimes we have to just say what we think. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of the timetable of our Lord's death or not. He was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. At 12 noon, the world was drowned in darkness. God pulled the shades on the sun, the moon, and the stars. Drowned the world in utter blackness. At three o'clock, he upped the shades and the lights came back on. And then Jesus died sometime just prior to the end of the day, which would have been five or six in the evening. That means then that our Lord spent eight or close to eight hours on the cross. As you read this, the four gospel accounts, 
you'll find that there are seven statements that our Lord made while he was on the cross. He might have made more, but these seven are recorded for us. The first statement is recorded in Luke 23, 34, when they had laid the cross flat on the ground and they stretched Jesus out on the cross. One Roman soldier would hold the, the arm while the other one drove the nails. In each hand and then in the feet. Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now the Bible says in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, if they had known, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But Jesus prayed for his persecutors. Father, forgive them. They have the foggiest idea what they're doing. And as you study the life of Christ, you'll find that prayer was a big part of his life. I mean, at the beginning of his ministry, his ministry began in prayer. He was praying when he got baptized. When he chose 12 apostles, prior to choosing them, he spent all night long in prayer, getting the wisdom of God before making those choices. Jesus, his life was spent in prayer. On one occasion, he put the disciples on a boat and sent them across the Sea of Tiberias, very stormy sea. Then he went up into a mountaintop to pray for them. You say, why is that storm coming? Do you think he knew the storm coming? No, I know he knew the storm was coming. He's God. He created the storm. He made it just for them. So he went up to the mountain to pray for them. Then at three in the morning, or sometime between three and six in the morning, he came down from the mountain, and he became a part of the solution. And by the way, Christian... If you get serious about your prayer life, God might use you as a part of the solution sometimes. Jesus lived a life of prayer. His life began in prayer. His ministry, his ministry is now ending in prayer. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus taught that we're to bless our enemies. And we're to pray for those who despitefully use us. And now he is living out before the world his own teaching. Jesus Christ prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's interesting to note before we move on to the next one, that uh, when Jesus lived and roamed on earth, every single time that somebody in his presence needed forgiveness, he did the forgiving himself. But now, he has become our sin for us. He can't forgive now. He has to ask the Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That was in the morning. Sometimes still daylight in that morning. His second uh, his second act really was an act of soul winning. He was crucified between two thieves. They were paying the death penalty. At first, they both began to rail on him, criticize him, and say, if you're really the Son of God, why don't you get us out of this mess? Then one of them had a tender heart, and he began to think about what he'd said. When the thief on the other side began to rail on Jesus again, the other thief put him in his place. 
I said, you and I are getting exactly what we deserve. This man has done nothing amiss. And then he turned to the Lord and he said, Lord, he believed in the deity of Christ. Remember me. He had a humble faith. When thou comest, he believed in the second coming. Into thy kingdom, he recognized Jesus' sovereign kingship and lordship. Jesus said to him today, Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Christian, let me make a brief application. If the Son of God, purchasing redemption for the entire human race, I mean, he's, he's acting out the purchase, the redemption for all of us from Adam down the line to the last man. And yet right in the middle of it, he puts on the brakes, pulls the vehicle over to the side, stops it all. He, he ceases the process to win one soul to salvation. If soul winning, if souls are that important to him, should they not be half that important to us? The third saying of our Lord is recorded in John 19, 26, and it shows great tenderness and great wisdom on his part. Jesus is hanging on the cross. It's late morning now. And he looks down from the cross. And there he sees his biological mother, Mary. She's getting old now. And she has a few lady friends with her. And he sees John, not John the Baptist, John the Apostle. And he looks at Mary, and in fulfillment of biblical prophecy, he says to Mary, Woman, behold thy son. Talking about himself. Then he turned to John and addressed John and spoke to John about Mary and said, John, behold thy mother. Now, wait a minute. Mary was not the mother of John. There was no biological relationship. Why did Jesus say, John, behold thy mother? I'll tell you why. Joseph is off the scene. You won't find Joseph anywhere in the Bible after that event where Jesus Christ is 12 years old in the temple. From then on he's gone. Not another mention of him. He's just not there. We are left to believe that he probably died a premature death. Regardless, he's gone. Jesus has half-brothers and half-sisters. And yet none of them were saved until after the resurrection of Christ. And Mary, by this time, is getting old. So Jesus looks down from the cross... And he says, John, Joseph is gone. My brothers and sisters ain't fit to take care of Mama. And I'm about to check out of here. And Mama's getting old. John, take her home. And treat her like your mother the rest of her life. And so he did. I see two things in that. First of all, our Lord is concerned that the elderly get taken care of. 
I'm not against nursing homes by any stretch of the imaginations. But the fact is, neighbor, God takes a dim view of those who shut their appearance away when they get old. In fact, God says in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that those who do not take care of their own elderly are worse than infidels. And they're apostates. They've denied the faith. So Jesus is demonstrating that he's concerned for his old elderly. But there's another reason I think that Jesus chose John. I mean, he could have chosen Peter. Peter could have learned how to speak gracefully from her. He could have chosen Thomas. Thomas could have gleaned some of her strong faith. Why John? Well, let me ask you a question. John wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the Revelation. The Revelation is all about Jesus Christ and the glory of his deity at his second coming. What could better prepare John than to get to sit at the feet of the biological mother of our Savior every evening in front of the fireplace and pick her brain? I don't know if you're aware of it or not, but we old folks like to reminisce, don't we, Brother Waymire? We like to we like to reminisce. And can you imagine? Hey, we're talking about the one who birthed the Son of God. We're talking about the one who carried him in her womb for nine months. We're talking about the one who went through the gates of death to give him life. We're talking about the one who changed his diapers, nursed him and fed him, taught him and trained him in his early years. What would better prepare John to be the revelator than to get to sit at her feet and pick her brain and pull her thoughts out of her? Jesus knew what he was doing when he gave John that job. Then the fourth saying, the middle saying of our Lord is also a prayer. The world turned dark at noon and it came back to light again at three. This saying occurred just prior to the time when it came back to light again. Still dark. The silence of the hour, three hours of utter black darkness. Then in the middle of it all, our Lord cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You'll notice that Jesus is not calling God Father now. For our Lord has become sin for us, and God cannot look on sin. So God has turned his back on his own begotten Son. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken? Why have you disowned me? Forsaken means disowned. Let me give you a little illustration. A young lady has a baby. For some reason, she feels she's not able to take care of the baby. So when she gets out of the hospital, she takes that little one and wraps him in a nice warm blanket. Puts him in a basket on top of another blanket and puts another blanket over the top. And then pins a note to the blanket. And then she takes that basket with the baby in it and lays it on the doorstep of somebody who she believes 
will give that baby a decent life. And she turns around and walks away and she hides and watches to make sure that they, she knocks on the door first or rings the bell. Then she hides and watches to make sure that the baby is going to be okay. Today somebody comes out and rescues that child on the porch. Mama turns around and walks away. She disowns her child. 2,000 years ago, Almighty God took his son. Didn't wrap him in a nice blanket, wrap him in grave clothes. Didn't lay him in a basket, put him in a manger, a sheep dung festered manger. Put a note essentially on him and said, Here's my son. He's coming to die for your sin. And he laid him in Bethlehem. Not with the hopes he'd have a better life knowing he'd have to go to hell for you and me. And he turned around and walked away. Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew why. He wasn't asking that for his own information. He was asking that for our education. Second Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ to be sin. He did not become a sinner. He did become sin. Every sin that you could ever think of committing, Jesus Christ became that sin. Paid for it in your place. Then the fourth, that was the fourth, the fifth saying of our Lord. Takes place when the lights come back on again. Sometime during the end of the day, and it's recorded in John 19, 28, Jesus cried out in agony two words, I thirst. I thirst! He's been on the cross for maybe five or six hours at least, by no more than that, six or seven hours. His lips are swollen and cracked and bleeding. His tongue is swollen, his throat is parched. His, uh, the Bible says that all of his joints came loose, not a bone broken, but every joint came loose. His lungs were stretched out of proportion. He's, he's gasping for every breath and has to try to, with the nails holding his weight, push his body up so he can get a breath. And he cries out among that, Hi! First! Can you imagine? Here's the one who created water, crying out for a drop of it. Here's the one who holds the water of all of the seas in the hollow of his hand, Isaiah chapter 40. Now he's wanting a drop on the end of his tongue. Here's the one who said to the woman at the well, if you'll switch wells, you'll never thirst again. Now he's crying out for a drop of that water. Here's the one who said on the last day, that great day of the feast, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And now he's crying out for a drop of that water. Yes, he was thirsty physically. But I'm convinced he was also thirsty to be back in fellowship with his heavenly Father. In fact, he prayed in John chapter 17 and verse 5, Father, glorify thy Son with the glory that I had with you 
before the world was. I was longing to be back in that fellowship again. Thirsty. But I'm also convinced that he's thirsting. He's dying for souls that he's thirsting. That sinners would hear the gospel and be saved. He's thirsting for the souls of sinners. I thirst. And then not long before his final breath, Jesus lets out a belting shout of victory. He cried out, it's recorded in John 19 and verse 30, It is finished! Three words in our language. Not words of defeat, words of victory. It is finished! You know in the language of the New Testament, that's only one word. It's not important for you to remember, it's pronounced tetelestai. I studied that word. That word translated, it is finished, tetelestai, is a banking term. It means the books are balanced. We can go home now. It's like this. On the books, on this side, is my name and all of my sin. On this side is Jesus' name and all of his righteousness. God reached down and took all of my sin and put it on his page. I took all of his righteousness and put it on my page. And he says, the books are balanced. We can go home now. But you know, it's also a legal term. That means paid in full. Nowadays, if a criminal or someone suspected and convicted goes to prison, and uh, if they have a real sharp lawyer, they might get off early. They might get off the hook altogether. Uh, if they behave themselves, they might get early release on uh, good behavior. But you know, in Bible times, they didn't have all that. In Bible times, you served every day, every hour, every minute of your sentence. There was no, you know, mercy. You paid your sentence. When you would get out, there would be no newspaper to announce your sentence was over. So the governor would take a thing, a piece of paper, and he would stamp it with his seal and right across it, tetelestai, meaning sentence paid in full. And he'd send it, and it would be delivered to the, the prisoner being released. And you would take that. If it were you, that paper, and you'd tuck it in your pocket securely. Then as you walked the streets and mingled again in society, if somebody recognized you but did not know your sentence had been paid for, maybe thought you had broken out, they'd run to you and grab you and call the authorities. And all you had to do was pull that paper. Tetelestai. It's paid for, finished. I said to you, neighbor, if you're saved, maybe you haven't been saved very long or you're just a young Christian, and the devil comes to you, maybe through religious media, there's a lot of that, and he says, look there, you're not perfect, are you? You sin. You're going to go to hell now. All you've got to do is pull out the document, wave it in his face, and tell him, to tell us time, pay it in full. 
I'm free. Somebody should ever come to you and try to convince you that you can get it today and lose it tomorrow and you can get it free, but you've got to work to keep it. That's a lie out of the pit of hell. All you've got to do is pull that book out and show one of many hundreds of promises that say it's paid in full. It is finished! And then the very last saying of our Lord recorded in Luke 23, 46, where Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. Then the Bible says, not that his head fell, says he bowed his head. That takes an act of the will. He knew his time was up. He knew every prophecy had been fulfilled and every promise had been fulfilled. And so he voluntarily, at the right time, bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Now, He's back in fellowship with the Father. His prayer in John 17, 5 has been answered. And redemption's price has been paid. And as a result, you can go to heaven now. You can have your sins forgiven. All because of what he did. Now, that's not the end of the story. I'm going to stop there, but that's not, it's not the end of the story. You know what happened three days later. Do you realize, my precious friend, nobody, nobody could describe it. Nobody will ever know how much Jesus suffered for our sins except those who go to hell. They'll know. Nobody will ever know how much Jesus suffered except those who go to hell. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When he comes our glorious King. All the ransomed home to bring. Then anew in heaven will sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. I have a question for you, and then I'm done. Are you 100% sure, for a Bible reason, that you have received, accepted Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross as your only salvation? Have you got it settled? I told the men this story this week in the 1890s. I think I did. In the 1890s, Dwight Lyman Moody, that great evangelist of that era, he died in the late 18, later 1890s. He was at a coal mining town holding a meeting in a massive auditorium near London, England. A coal miner went to that meeting. That young man sat in the back Listen to the powerful preaching of the evangelist D.L. Moody. During the invitation, hundreds of people went forward to be saved. That man went forward. He knelt at the altar. He prayed to receive Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. 
When they went to shut the building, he refused to go home until he had it settled. He had to know. He had to. He just had to have that peace and get it settled. He stayed till way into the night. Finally, he got that peace. He got it settled and he went home. The next morning, he got up. He went down to the coal mines like he did every day. Began working. Halfway through the morning, there was a horrible accident. A cave-in. A man was buried under tons of coal. All the workers and miners and even citizens from the town came out and feverishly worked to uncover that man's body. They finally found him. His body was mangled and twisted. He only had two or three minutes of life left in him. They dragged him out. His friends gathered around him. And they noticed his lips were just barely moving, but they couldn't hear a sound. So some of them got on their hands and knees, and they put their ear right up to the opening of his mouth. And here's what they heard. I'm glad I got it settled last night. I'm glad I got it settled last night. I'm glad I got it settled last night. And with the third time he was gone. If tomorrow morning you should be driving to work or to anywhere, or maybe in the afternoon, maybe on the way home, and all of a sudden as you drive, you should hear the sudden screech of brakes and squealing of rubber against the road. You should feel the sudden impact of metal against metal, crashing flying glass, and you should be the victim. Would you be able to say, I'm glad I got it settled yesterday. Have you got it settled? Jesus Christ has done everything that he can do for you to get it settled. That's up to you to trust him. Would you bow with me, please, for prayer? Every head bowed and every eye closed. I'll ask the pianist if she'll come and insist, prepare the invitation song of your choice. And after I pray, I'll give a signal to begin like that, please. Heads about it, eyes are closed. Please listen carefully. How many in this room can honestly say, and you better be honest with God about this, Preacher, I am 100% sure for a Bible reason, if I were to drop dead right now, I'd go to heaven. I'm saved and I know it. If you can unflinchingly say yes to that, would you lift your hand all over the house and let me see it? I'm 100% sure. God bless you. What a wonderful sight. Thank you. Put your hands down. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody listen. Nobody looking. If you could not or did not raise your hand, thank you for your honesty. That shows that you have some character. And much of that left. How many in this room would say, Preacher, I could not, did not, or should not have raised my hand. I'm not 100% sure that heaven is my home, but preacher, I would like to be. 
I'm not 100% sure that I'm saved and Jesus Christ lives in me. But preacher, I'd like to be. Would you pray for me that I'll get it settled before it's too late? Is there one like that? Just lift your hand quickly and put it back down again. May I remember you in the closing prayer? God bless you. Is there another? I will not embarrass you. I will not point you out. I give you my solemn word of honor. I pray for you in such a fashion that nobody will ever know by my prayer for whom I am praying. Preacher, I'm just not sure that I'm going to heaven, but I'd like to be. Pray for me. Is there another? Quickly. Heavenly Father, as I promised, I pray for this one who raised a hand indicating I'm just not 100% sure that I'd like to be. And I pray, oh God, that you'd help that one to understand that we're all sinners. That the payment for being a sinner is eternal separation from you in a place the Bible calls hell or the lake of fire. I pray that you'd help that one to understand, Lord Jesus, that when you died on the cross 2,000 years ago and rose from the dead, you paid for that one's sins, past, present, and future, paid in full. And I pray that you'd help that one, even at this moment, once and for all, by faith to open the heart, trust you, and ask you to come in and save you. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody looking. We'll ask the pastor if he'll come and stand down here in the front. In a moment, we're going to have another prayer, just a brief prayer. And uh, then after the prayer, we'll be standing. After the prayer, the, I'll have the instruments play. You'll probably see some people come forward just to pray a few, maybe. If you raise your